What do you think of when you hear the word submit or submission? What's the, what's the image or the thought that comes to your mind? It's going to be a key word we focus on this morning. Um, the title of the sermon is, is Submitting to the Way. And we're going to be looking at three chapters in the book of Acts, 24, 25, and 26, which is biting off more than I can chew, um, which is why we, we, we're choosing to look just at one particular angle of it this morning, which is the emphasis, especially in, in chapter 24, on the, on the phrase, the way. Capital W, the way. When you think of submission, you think maybe of passively laying down under another person's power or submitting yourself to someone's leading. But you can also think of it as, as being empowered to give something alongside another's gracious leading. So you think of, we have some college students here in the room, you, you have assignments that are coming up and when you finish an assignment and you turn it in online, you push the button that says submit. And there you're, you're taking an active stance of uh, giving something in, turning it in. And so submission, uh, again, has, has these deep connotations in our world today. And I just was thinking this week of Veterans Day and, you know, people who, are, who have submitted themselves to the military and given themselves into a deep cause and I'm thinking even now of, of the scriptures that talk about submission to your authorities, submission to government. And then I got thinking about how challenging that's turned in the last couple of years. I mean, I'm, I'm not that old of a person, but it's changed in my own lifetime of the difficulty of, of, of feeling good about submitting to authority or to government. And so to whom or, or to what do you find yourself submitting? to your own desires, to yourself, or submitting to your job, which requires a lot of your time and energy, or to God and the government. And so this morning, I wanna focus on really these, these two different ways that I think Acts 24, 25, and 26 really show us well. Again, we can't look at the details of the passage super in depth because it's three chapters, but I think we can look at two big angles of tension that emerge in these chapters. And one is the way of politics. So you're gonna look at this morning and see Paul on trial with politicians. The Roman governors, two of them in succession, one is the governor Felix, governor of Rome and Judea, and one is his successor Festus. And then in chapter 26, you see him before another politician or ruler, which is King Agrippa II who was one of the kind of puppet kings uh, overseeing uh, Judea under Romans, uh, under the reign of Rome. And so when you think about the way of politics, um, many in our country, our world, and even within Christianity are submitting ultimately to the power of politics. And I just, let me just pause right now. I, I see the deep water that I'm wading into. Um, and this is the first time I'm expressively, intentionally uh, expressing a sermon through the lens of politics, which you walk into with fear and trembling. Um, but then I'm also assured 
that really, in one sense, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ has always been a political message. You look at Jesus, and you see him in his later years on trial with Pontius Pilate, coming before the high priest, crucified on a Roman cross. Uh, the expectations of Israel that Jesus was going to be the ruler, the political reign, reigning king, uh, the message of Jesus really is political in some ways. And so as we, as we wade into a little bit of the politics, uh, we're also going to be looking at, at the way of Jesus as well. But let me just focus again on politics for a second. That just was my quick aside. Uh, I, I stumbled on an article this week that you know, just expresses the difficulty of understanding politics in our modern world. And this article said that there's actually nine political types of people in America now. And... Four of them are within the Democratic circle. Four of them are within the Republican circle. And then there's one that they say probably is as many as 15% of Americans um, who they call stressed sideliners. So you have those that are entrenched in the Democratic side in four different capacities, four in the Republican side in different capacities. Then you have this group that are just called stressed sideliners, which means they're kind of on the sideline frustrated, annoyed, uh, indifferent, maybe at this point, apathetic, but overall stressed. Like politics has become stressful. And so it's become clear that our world really is a political world. I think it always has been, but it's become increasingly clear for us in these days. And like I said earlier, the, the scriptures do say Romans 13, Titus 3, 1 Peter 2, all in, in one way or another, be subject to your leaders to the governing authorities. And so this idea of submitting to government is a biblical idea. And it's one that I think we see Paul doing in Acts 24, 25, and 26. But you also see the way of Jesus emerging in these chapters as well. If you look at chapter 24, verse five, and again, I, I encourage you to have a Bible open um, because we are going to be looking at these, at these verses and these sections of Scripture briskly and kind of in big swaths. But in verse 5 of chapter 24, you see uh, those coming accusing Paul. They're, kind of, they're following him around. Again, Paul is in, he's in Caesarea now because uh, he's been fleeing the persecution uh, through the help of these leaders. In verse 5, these people are accusing him, and they say, We have found this man, Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That's what they see Paul as, is the ringleader of this little tiny sect known as the Nazarenes. Which Remember, Jesus was born of Nazareth, and so they see this emerging as a Nazarene threat. But in verse 14, again, I'm just, we're hopping around a little bit here to begin with. But in verse 14, Paul begins defending himself. And he comes back to this point that these people had made. They say, he says, they call me, you know, a member of a sect. He says, but verse 14, but this I confess to you, that according to the way, capital W, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. And so the way of Jesus begins to emerge as a point of clarity within this politics and religion debate here that's emerging in these three chapters. And what, 
what Paul continually comes back around to five times, particularly in these three chapters, is the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the God of the universe. Five times. Chapter 24, verse 15, chapter 24, verse 21, chapter 25, verse 19, chapter 26, verse 8, chapter 26, verse 23. And so the question emerges for us today, which we're going to wade into, how do we understand the relationship between the way of Jesus and the way of politics? And what will that understanding ultimately do for us? So even if we arrive at understanding, why, what does it actually do for us as people or as Christians or as those who are seeking to find truth and hope in the world? And so we're, we're in our last two weeks of our sermon series on the book of Acts. We've been here since just after Easter, and we're, we're making a rush to the finish these, last, these next two weeks. This week, Acts 24 to 26. Next Sunday, we'll finish it up in Acts 27 and 28. Uh, but the, the phrase we've been using all along is God is on the move. And friends, God is on the move even through politics, even through a, a culture and a society that has, has lost its way in this murkiness of political discussion and tension. Even through that, God is moving and is teaching the church something. And so what is he teaching? That's what we're looking to figure out this morning. So the first big point I want to look at is just this relationship between politics and Jesus, the way of politics and the way of Jesus and so I think these actually overlap in several ways in these three chapters. And they're trying to engage with one another. You see Paul symbolizing the way of Jesus, and you see these three politicians symbolizing the way of politics. Which one is going to win? But again, they, they see Paul as the ringleader. And so Paul is now in the ring with the political leaders. And what I think is beautiful about this passage before anything else is you don't see a fist fight emerging. You don't see people pointing fingers at each other. They're actually, they're dialoguing, they're listening, but in different ways. So let's, let's understand this together. So I'm going to give you, for this, under this first big point of the relationship between the two, I'm going to give you just seven quick relationships. Because as I was thinking this morning, this week, how do I, how do I preach this text? I think, it's, I think it's good just to get a big overview. And then for the second point, we'll dive in to why it matters. So the first big relationship between the way of politics and the way of Jesus is the relationship of promise. What is being promised here by both sides? So if you look at the first section of, of chapter 24, again, it's, it's Paul on trial with the governor of Rome for this region of, of Judea named Felix. And what you see right away, verse two, is these people are coming and they're accusing Paul, like I mentioned already. And verse 2, it says, and when he had been summoned, so it's, you have the spokes, spokesperson Tertullus, who's a spokesperson for the high priest, he comes and he begins to accuse Paul, puts him on, on trial. And he says before the governor, he says to the governor, since through you, through the governor, we enjoy much peace. And since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. Do you see the respect that's given there to the Roman governor? What, what are, what is politics, and again, I don't want to paint too broadly, with, but paint with too broad of a brush here, but specifically here in this context, it seems like what Felix was promising above everything else was peace, civil peace, particularly. 
And so if you've studied history, Western civilization at all, you've probably heard the phrase, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, which is what Romans were ultimately for. They were, they were trying to bring together all these different cultures, but ultimately to have Rome be the peacemaker, the peacekeeper. And so that's why their soldiers were so ruthless because they wanted to keep the peace at all costs. And if you begin to see that theme even in the scriptures, it begins to unlock a lot of their reasoning for being so vigilant uh, with you know, Jesus kind of causing a stir in the city. They wanted to keep the peace. So politics promises peace. And then when Paul stands up, again, look at verses 14, 15, and 16. So verse 14, again, Paul is saying that he belongs to the way the way of God, not just this sect in, in Nazareth, but a bigger way. He worships the God of our fathers. And then verse 15, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. The way of politics promises peace. The way of Jesus promises hope. Hope. Number two, the interaction between politics and Jesus, the ways, is number two, is the relationship between how, how, you, how do you interact? How do you, how, do, how do you dialogue together? And this is just kind of a, a theme I think we've begun seeing in the book of Acts as a whole, but politics, particularly in these last couple of chapters, remember last week Paul was on trial with the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and this week he's with the politicians, but politics creates this debate scenario where it's one person on the stand against another debating ideas back and forth. And again, we see this in the modern times, right? That's how we decide presidential candidates and presidential elections is you put two guys or two, a male or a female or whoever it is on the stage and they debate, they go back and forth. And here you see that Rome and the religious leaders are both setting up this accusation and defense back and forth. And three times, that's the case in each chapter, chapter 24, 25, 26, that's the back and forth that happens. Who do you believe is basically the scenario they're setting up. Jesus's way beautifully creates conversation. Look at verse 24 and 25 of chapter 24. It says, after some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus. And Paul reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And we'll get into Felix's reaction in just a moment. But the beautiful thing about the way of Jesus is that it doesn't set up this debate scenario. Again, you see Jesus resisting that as well back in his trial. But you see Paul here patiently waiting for the moment to engage in real conversation, in reasoning, in heartfelt one-on-one -on -one or small group dialogue conversation. And then verse 26, it says that after Felix was alarmed and sent him away, it says still that Felix would come back and call on him from time to time to talk more with him. I think that's so intriguing. How in the world does a Christian get the ear of a politician so well that he, he just calls him in from time to time to chat, to talk more. And again, we'll see some of Felix's motivations in a moment, but, but still something about how Paul was reasoning with Felix caught his heart attention. Number three, continuing this relationship between politics and Jesus, motivation. 
What is the motivation ultimately of politics? What's the motivation ultimately of the way of Jesus? Politics, just plainly speaking, it's susceptible to many different types of motivation. And you see a couple of them emerge in this chapter. So chapter 25 or chapter 24, verse 25, right where we've been, it says Felix was alarmed and he says, go away for the present. And when I get an opportunity, I'll summon you back and we'll talk more. And so you see here that Felix is kind of on the clock. He's been pressed by time here. And he says, I can't, I don't really have time to deal with this. So you just kind of go sit in your cell for a little bit and we'll come back. So there's a time motivation here. Verse 26, we get deeper into it. It says, at the same time, Felix hoped that money would be given to him by Paul uh, so that he could uh, be given to him by Paul so he could send him away. So he's looking for a bribe. There's a money component here too. And again, I'm not saying all politicians are this way or all politics are this way. I'm just saying these politics is susceptible to these motivations. And when you get into verse uh, verses 1 to 5 of chapter 25, you see them... Um, Festus, the, the, the successor of Felix, basically saying he's trying to do the Jews a favor. He's trying to help them out a little bit. And so that's part of his motivation. Jesus's way on the, on, the, on the counter is motivated by integrity. Again, what does Paul choose to talk to Felix about when he has the opportunity? He doesn't try to reason his way out of, out of jail. Instead, he says, he talks about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. This consistency with what he believes and then what he actually expresses to a politician. All right, let's go a little bit faster here. Number four, what's the, what's the feeling about the miraculous? The miraculous. Politics, when they see something uncertain or even borderlining on the miraculous or the supernatural, politics will defer. And so that's why Felix, when Paul starts bringing up the resurrection or the person of Jesus, he defers and he says, I'm just going to kind of let this one sit in the corner and let the next guy take care of it. The way of Jesus, actually, the whole thing hinges on the miraculous, right? Which, again, is why I said Paul talks so much about the resurrection earlier. Number five, authority. What's the relationship between views of authority here? Who is the authority in politics? You'll see here later uh, when King Agrippa comes to the stand that politics loves to platform power. And it says here that Agrippa came in with great pomp and circumstance. And it says the military tribunes came and sat down and there was power all around. Jesus's way, again, think of Jesus and his own trial before Pilate and before all the authorities. His way is way of weakness way of silence, way of serving. Jesus's way showcases the weak, the poor, the unimpressive. Number six, what about truth? What does politics think of truth? And what does the way of Jesus think about truth? Truth has been kind of beaten around the last few months. The word of the year, I think it was last year, by, I think it was Oxford Dictionary, the word of the year was post-truth. And so we're entering into this era where truth is maybe not seen as, as central as it once was. It doesn't necessarily matter if it's true, just as long as it's getting there, I think is kind of the, the thrust. And so politics accepts truth. 
They're ultimately, I think, looking for that. But Jesus's way claims to be the truth. The passage that was read earlier, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He claims to be the truth himself. And then number seven, the last part of the relationship here. What's ultimately the goal or the end game of the way of politics and the way of Jesus? Go all the way to the end of chapter 26. Let's just jump to the end for a second, and then we'll move our way backwards. So Paul, by this point, is he's come before Felix, he's come before Festus, he's come before Agrippa, and then in verse 29 of chapter 26, so kind of at the very end, everybody's trying to figure out what to do, what's the end game, what do we do with Paul? Verse 29, Paul says this. He says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, a Christian, except for these chains. The end game for the, for the way of Jesus is ultimately that the gospel would go forward and that people would put their trust in Jesus. And ultimately, what's the way of politics? Look at verse 30 and 31. Then the king arose and the governor and Bernice and those who are sitting with him, again, all this power, all this, you know, this prestige is there. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free had he not appealed to Caesar. As, as Americans, we live in the land of the free. We pride ourselves on freedom, which is a glorious truth and a glorious goal. But that's as far as politics can take us. And that's as far as Agrippa and Festus and Felix could take Paul. They said, if he just kept his mouth shut about Jesus, we could have set him free by now. And they said, then our job would have been done. And we would have fulfilled our promise to all sides. Freedom was as far as politics could take it. But Jesus, the end game there for the way of Jesus is not just freedom, not just being set free from chains and being delivered, but the way of Jesus actually is something deeper. It's the deeper truth that even if freedom doesn't come, even if you remain in chains, that you are content with the call of God in your life. Think about how Paul has been responding to imprisonment and to his arrest and his persecution throughout the book of Acts. We've been learning about it for weeks now. Paul has not been trying to escape this call. Rather, he, he was, remember last week, he was steadfast on getting to Jerusalem because he knew that he was called to go there. And then even last week, we saw that it said, as Paul testified in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So why, why did Paul keep saying, I appeal to Caesar? Because he knew that ultimately Rome was his ultimate destination where he needed to go. And so within the persecution, within the chains, within the being bound, Paul was learning the value of being content in all things. Philippians 4. Again, Paul writes this to encourage the church in Philippi. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things 
through him who strengthens me. That's a lot. That's seven things of how these two things relate. Deep waters, right? I don't expect you to to fully understand all that. I don't fully understand all that. But what does this mean for us? What do we see emerging when you put the way of Jesus and the way of politics side by side? How do we live in a world where we're increasingly asked, how do these two relate or fight against each other or told to get away from each other? I'm going to tell you why Jesus is better. Politics can't be the ultimate answer. Politics is purposeful, but ultimately it is flawed. Politics is here to keep order and to keep peace, which is wonderful and so important. But politics has repeatedly only been used for limited gains. The flaw of politics is that it's led by flawed people. Politics is helpful, but it's limited. Politics accomplishes great things for people, healthcare, economics, equity, justice, but ultimately politics can't do everything. Politics has been used by God for good, but it's ultimately a temporary reality because one day, as we're gonna see in the month of Advent, the month leading up to Jesus's birth, that one day the government itself will be laid on Jesus's shoulders and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor everlasting father, prince of peace, almighty God. One day, this temporary governments of earth will one day fully rest on the shoulders of Jesus and it won't be flawed or limited because Jesus is perfect and he's full. And he alone can bear that weight of leading the world. The way of Jesus, as was read earlier in Matthew 7, is a narrow path that few find it, but Jesus promises that those who seek him will find him, that if you knock on the door, he will answer, and that as John 14 says, true belief in God is actually true belief in Jesus, who reveals the Father to us. He is both the way himself and the path to God. Jesus is the path that leads to heaven where governments will one day be on Jesus' shoulders forever. And Jesus is the one that leads us there. The church then is a people. The church then is a people who submits to the way of Jesus ultimately. And so what makes this way of Jesus more compelling than the way of politics? What is it that makes Felix, this Roman governor, want to continually call back to Paul and say, Paul, come in here. Let's talk a little bit more. What makes that a reality? It's the fact that Jesus is unbelievably compelling in our world. He is just like us, yet utterly unique. He's what King Herod the Great, Pontius Pilate, Governors Felix and Festus, King Agrippa, All these were intrigued by him, though they couldn't figure him out. But he was just a human like us. He was born as a baby. He was a carpenter's son, a Jewish teacher, ultimately a martyr. He's just like us, yet he's utterly unique. And that creates a compelling compellingness to Jesus that we need to figure out. Jesus' claims are exclusive, yet he is just deeply magnetic. 
For a man who sought no power or privilege, he became the center of political conversations for millennia. His message connects both to the heart and draws our heart in. He's probably the greatest enigma the world has ever seen, and yet he makes himself personally knowable to each person, even to children. He has a plan for the world, but no ulterior motives. His plan for the world is for goodness and justice and kindness and redemption and newness and ultimately salvation for it all. He's making all things new. Like we said last week, one day all the sad things will come untrue because that's Jesus's motive for the new creation. He was dead, yet now he is risen. Like I said earlier, ultimately, for Paul and for Christians, everything hinges on that resurrection, on that miraculous, because everything falls under submission to God because Jesus conquered death forever. And therefore, all things fall subject under his feet. Let me just read a couple of passages, and then I'll finish with a quick story for you. Passage here is 1 Corinthians 15. It says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by one man also has come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all people die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each then in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God and the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all things under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For, quote, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. How? By the resurrection, by defeating death. And that's why when Paul is on the stand before these three powerful leaders, that was the holdup the resurrection of Jesus. And that's the holdup for so many of us today. If Jesus raised from the dead, then everything has changed. And that's the conversation we need to be having, encouraging one another. What does the resurrection mean for you and I? Because if it's true, all things are under his feet and the government belongs to him. And all governments today then are in subject to him. And that's why we pray for our leaders, pray for our governments, why we fight for good causes, why we come alongside and support them, why we challenge them when things go awry. This is the complexity we live in, but ultimately we can say that Christ is risen. Here's my closing illustration for you, which is going to be a little dampered because I can't show you pictures of it. That's okay. It may, may even be better this way. Picture a Japanese puffer fish. Whatever you're thinking is probably what it actually looks like. Japanese puffer fish. I learned a lot about a Japanese puffer fish this week. Not only that it looks like something that's puffed up, um, but that it actually does something extraordinary. Japanese puffer fish have this amazing uh, technique that they do underwater with the sand. It takes them seven to nine days, 24 hours a day to do this, because if they stop at all, then the current of the water will brush it away. But on the bottom of the ocean floor, they use 
their fishness, whatever it is about them, to create these beautiful circles and patterns on the floor of the sea. And not just that, but they actually pick up shells and place them in these circles perfectly symmetrical to create this alluring, beautiful picture, ultimately to attract female puffer, puffer fishes. But if you look up a picture of this, you say, how in the world could something as ugly as a Japanese puffer fish make something as beautiful as that? And yet here's the irony of the whole thing. As this article said that I read about this, it says there's a chance that it's only the fine sand that the females are after, not the formations, intricate patterns or symmetry. The beautiful lines and the structures could serve only to channel those particles to the center, and therefore they may have no aesthetic purpose at all. That's the point. Point is, is that the beauty with which we do things matters deeply to God, but ultimately I think what matters to God is that attraction that we're using what he's given us to draw people to himself. That's the sand that matters. And so for you and I, as we look into something like politics or trying to discern, well, how do we understand all this today? You know, we want to make beautiful things in the world. But ultimately, it's that, that, that sand that is the attraction itself. And so you and I are the sand, actually, in this whole metaphor. That what God loves about his people is you yourself. You're the person. And he's calling you to submit to him. And that the beauty that comes as a result is only because of the gracious beauty of the art of the creator himself. That he uses things like us to create beauty. And so, church, we submit to the resurrection. We submit to the way of Jesus and trust that that is his way. As Leslie Newbegin said, someone asked him one time, are you an optimist or a pessimist? And his answer was, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And so we trust in that resurrected Savior. Let me pray for us, and then we'll sing one more song. Lord, we, we struggle to submit. And as we approach texts like this, or as we live in seasons like this in our world, I think it's, it's a real struggle in each of us to know uh, what to do. And so... Lord, I pray for discernment for each of us to be able to see the beauty of Christ at work in our lives, even when we can't see it ourselves. That submission ultimately is not about knowing everything or about understanding it all, but it is about believing one thing and trusting in one thing and having faith in one thing. And that is that because Christ has risen from the dead, everything changes. And therefore, the way of Jesus outlasts the way of politics. So, Lord, teach us, uh, humble us through this, um, create good conversations out of this teaching. May we look to you. 
May we see your glory and may it dazzle us, as St. Augustine said. May your glory dazzle us and spur us on to do beautiful things in your world under your submission. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.